Well, hello. My name is Curtis, and I'm calling on behalf of Citibank to let you know that you've been pre-approved to receive the American Airlines Select Card. I was young in a new town, just out of college. The only job I could find in central Nebraska was with ITI. I don't remember what the initials stood for. Do you know? Yep, but the T was for telemarketing. It was a business in the basement of a furniture store in downtown Kearney, Nebraska. I had finished Bible college, so I had no real marketable skills. <laughs> and uh, was still a few months away from, from Amber and, and my wedding. Um, so I moved to her hometown. She lived in her parents' basement. And I was living in a furnished apartment. I don't remember what it was called. Um, it was an old hotel, so even the sheets were furnished. Yeah. To call it an apartment would be a gross exaggeration. To call it furnished would be more gross. I had a microwave, a toaster oven. I had to wash dishes in the shower. The bed was made, made when I moved in. This is what Amber was referencing. I had my own sheets, but I thought it not wise to unmake the bed um, lest I arouse whatever might have been living in it. So I spread a comforter on top of it and hoped it would give me the protection I needed during the night. I worked full-time for two months for barely more than minimum wage, trying to earn a $2 bonus for each credit card I pushed on someone. On my best day, now, this was hard for me to admit, but I wasn't good at this. I might convince three or four unsuspecting victims to sign up for a credit card they really didn't need. I absolutely hated it. It was probably unethical, but it was certainly the most boring job I've ever had. I was telling my kids about this job this past week, of how I used to pass the time. I would draw eight rows of four circles on my little scratch paper that I had. Every 15 minutes, I would fill in a circle. Once I filled in all the circles, my day was done. I also took a lot of bathroom breaks. I got hung up on at least 90% of the time. I watched the clock. Many of you have had incredibly difficult jobs, but the very worst of jobs are the ones where you find yourself watching the clock. The very best of jobs, or even if you're risking life and limb, are where the hours pass and it catches you by surprise that it's time to go home. So remember that during this season of Advent, we are exploring some different ways that God sustains and empowers us to live and thrive in a kingdom that is growing right along with the weeds, right in the midst of this present evil age. On the first Sunday of Advent, we looked at John chapter 6. We looked at Jesus as the bread of life who sustains us, who indwells us, who protects us to present all of us, all of his followers, complete as a perfect gift to his Father at the last day. Last week, we looked at the reign of Jesus, at this promise that he would be a forever king and how and where to look for his reign and for his rule while we await his return. This week we're going to look 
at how we pass the time. How do we avoid watching the clock? We're going to look at the presence and purpose of Jesus during this in-between. Another way to say this is that Jesus is telling us that in the in-between, we shouldn't be watching the clock. We should be getting to the work. This morning I want to read from the first 14 verses of the first chapter of the book of Acts. So if you want to turn there, I'll read the first 14 verses. We're going to focus in on a handful of those. If you're from a tradition that follows the church calendar, this isn't a text you generally read during Advent. It's something you would read later on in the spring after Easter. But we're going to look at it today. It says this. I wrote the former account, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. To the same apostles also, after his suffering, he presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. He was seen by them over a 40-day period and spoke about matters concerning the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he declared, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait there for what my father promised, which you heard about from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had gathered together, they began to ask him, Lord, is this the time when you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He told them, you are not permitted to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. After he had said this, while they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud hid him from their sight. As they were still staring into the sky while he was going, suddenly two men in white clothing stood near them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered Jerusalem, they went to the upstairs room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, were there. All these continued together in prayer with one mind, together with the women, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It's easy for me to read the New Testament with its expectation of Jesus' soon and sudden return, and the way his followers lived in the light of that expectation— and feel sort of left out, right? It's one thing to actually see Jesus, to hear his words with your own ears, to hear his promise to return. 
or at least to learn of him and his return from those whose eyes and ears were witnesses to Jesus. We're about 2,000 years removed from those whose eyes and whose ears and whose hands saw, heard, and touched Jesus. Those first and perhaps second generation Christians had advantages that we, 50th generation Christians, if we consider a generation to be about 40 years, that we can't experience, that we don't experience in the same way. Yet in this text, in this event, in the very first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, we see the followers of Jesus asking the same kinds of questions and demonstrating the same kind of struggle shared by every generation, by every follower of Jesus who longs for his return. What we find in this account is that the earliest of the followers of Jesus are found watching the clock. They have a job to do. They've been given an assignment, but instead of going about the work, instead of doing the work, instead of stepping into and thriving in the vocation that Jesus gave to them, they are staring into the clouds, into the sky, wondering when he will come back. We often do the same. And I believe this text of Scripture helps us to avoid this error and tells us what to do instead. It helps us to know that we have been called to far more than just to wait. Though wait we must. In this text, Jesus gives us a task, a holy vocation, and explains how we are able to accomplish it until he returns. I want to focus on verses 6 through 10 and look at three statements that are made directly to these followers of Jesus. The first two statements are made by Jesus himself and are a response to a question the disciples ask Jesus before his ascension. In fact, it's a question that disciples of Jesus have been asking for 2,000 years. It may even be a question that you have asked in one form or another as you have suffered or as those whom you love have suffered. Maybe as you've observed the impact of sin and evil on the world around you. And maybe you've asked this question when you've observed the impact of sin and death and evil in your own heart. The question is in verse 6. Lord, is this the time you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they asking for? While he was with them, Jesus taught more than anything else about his kingdom, about the character of his kingdom, about what his kingdom is like. Think the Sermon on the Mount. Think all of the parables. These were all about the kingdom. And we know the disciples didn't get it at first. They didn't understand that Jesus was going to be a different kind of king not a king who inflicts violence to bring about peace, but a king who suffers violence to bring about peace and to reconcile his people to himself and to his father. We know that the disciples didn't understand that Jesus had to die and that he would rise on the third day. But now they've been witnesses to all of that. Now they know. They saw him die. 
They spent 40 days with him after the father raised him from the dead. Thomas touched his scars and proclaimed, My Lord and my God. I get the sense here that the disciples feel they've been pretty patient about things. 40 days, multiple appearances and experiences with the risen Jesus. And now the question, when will, when will he restore the kingdom to Israel? 40 days of living with Jesus' expectations, and now they are ready to ask about their own. Is now the time that Jesus will restore order? Is now the time that Jesus will free Israel from pagan Roman oppression? Is now the time that Jesus will purify the corrupt leadership of Israel and restore righteousness and justice to God's people? We often ask for the same, though perhaps with different words. And Jesus has an answer. I was thinking earlier this morning I should have worked if the answer, my friend, could be blowing in the wind, then we would have all the answers because <laughs> the wind has been blowing like crazy. Jesus' answer has two components. First, he says, you are not permitted to know the times or the period that the Father has appointed. Of the three statements made to the disciples here, this might be the hardest one to accept. Not the hardest to understand, just the hardest one to accept. Mm -hmm. Not only can we not influence the timing of his return, we cannot figure it out either. Especially in this season. I think of the wise men from the east we read about in Matthew chapter 2 who saw a star that signaled the first advent. They traveled to the west in order to find him. Many have speculated about exactly how this occurred. There's been movies made about it. But Jesus' second advent is not like this. Jesus himself says that we're not permitted to know the time or the period that this will take place. No star will appear to warn us of the second advent. Jesus' teaching is clear on this. He says in several different parables that his coming will be when we least expect it, that it will take us by surprise. He also says that it can come after a long delay. So we must be ready for it to come at any moment, and yet we must also be prepared for the long haul. Mm -hmm. That's Jesus' teaching about his return. But we still try, don't we? We still try to predict. We still try to find evidence that we are in those times or in the period. We look to see what's going on in Washington, D.C. We look to see what's going on in the Middle East. Decades ago, we looked at Russia and then at China. We looked at the United Nations and then the European Union. We predicted things with the rise of certain leaders and then had to adjust our predictions once they fell. And if you don't have time to look at all of these things, there's a website that will do it for you. I haven't checked it in a couple of years, so it might not be active anymore, but there's a website called the Rapture Ready Index. Um, I first learned about this uh, probably like 2004, and I know as of probably two years ago, it was still going. The Rapture Ready Index will tell you the likelihood 
of the return of Jesus. Now, I know what the likelihood of his return is. It's 100%. <laughs> but this website says that they're telling you how likely is it that it's going to happen soon, very soon. As I remember it, the website analyzes about 40 or so different factors. Things like war, things like oil prices, the economy, the number of godless leaders in the world, things like natural disasters. And they assign certain values to these factors to come up with an overall index between zero and 100. You can even trace the history of when the Rapture Ready Index peaked. It peaked during the Gulf War. It peaked during uh, 9-11. Um, I don't know since then. I'm sure it's peaked a few times. But Jesus says we are not to know. We're not to know. And thus we have the second statement Jesus makes to his disciples. Second, he says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to go and be witnesses to go and make disciples of all nations. This task, this vocation, this promise is a glorious and foundational reality for the church. But when I read this verse, it's not what I expect. When Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the period, but we expect something else to follow. We expect some kind of alternative that still has something to do with the times and the period. Like, it's not for you to know, but look for the Cubs to win the World Series. Some have, I think, overinterpreted this passage to mean that while we can't know the exact time or the exact date, we can still know maybe the month or the year or maybe even the generation. I believe the context of this passage, what Jesus says before and what he says after, doesn't give us that option. His point is that we can't know the timing. So instead, he, in a sense, changes the subject and gives us a task instead. In other words, the answer to the anxiety and uncertainty that we might have about our inability to know the timing of his second advent is the presence of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be his witnesses. We're not given the timing, but we are given the Holy Spirit. I've known some people who seem that they would rather know the timing than have the Spirit. But the Father in sending us the Spirit rather than the time and the date has definitely given us more. I'm not sure what we would do if we knew. But he's given us the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is no less than the very presence of Christ. We're not given the timing, but we're given a person. And I, for one, don't want to trade. Yet the gift of the Holy Spirit is not given to satisfy my curiosity or to improve my personal life, though I'm sure he has improved my personal life in ways that I can't even imagine. 
The Holy Spirit is given to empower the church to fulfill a task, the task of being his witnesses. In Port Lyons, on Kodiak Island, in Alaska, in Alaska's little brother, the United States, and to the ends of the earth. Many talk and teach about the Holy Spirit and his power. In fact, if you go to the, like the higher channels on your dish or whatever, you'll see this stuff kind of all day long. Many talk and teach about the Holy Spirit and about his power, but rarely do I see much discussion of the relationship of this power for mission, for the vocation that Jesus has given us. Maybe except at a missions conference. This is a very popular passage that you'll hear um, at a missions conference or at a time of the year when the church is focused on international mission. Much of the talk about the Holy Spirit is self-centered rather than mission and world-centered. I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit can point to Jesus with great power, but he points to Jesus, not to the preacher, not to the program, not to a person. Jesus says you are not to know the times, but you will, you will receive the Spirit. Two statements made by Jesus to his disciples, really to all the church, that gives them their task. You're not to know the times, but you will receive the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. The final statement to the disciples is not made by Jesus, but by these two men who appear, who are dressed in white. And I think it really serves as the application to us from this passage. So given, the, given these realities, that we can't know the time, and that we've been given the Holy Spirit to, to complete the vocation that he's given us, what do we do? Jesus gave the disciples their task with the promise of his presence to empower them for this vocation of mission to the world. And then he ascends. And they stand, staring into the heavens. Two men dressed in white appear and tell them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Look at what they do after hearing this message. They obey Jesus. They go about the task. They get moving with the vocation. They return to Jerusalem where they wait for the promised Holy Spirit. In the meantime, they pray together and they get on with the task. This first task they do seems kind of odd and maybe mundane, maybe more like an ancient church business meeting, but they, re they, uh, they chose a replacement for Judas, Judas who betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot. And then comes Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Stop staring and get to work. That's the message here. Like the old saying, a watch pot never boils, I guess staring into the sky will not bring Jesus back. 
So we are to get to work, to get to the task. He has promised to return, and he has promised that we will not know when. It will be sudden, and it will be unexpected, even if it is delayed. So be ready. And we do not ready ourselves by staring into the sky. We do not ready ourselves by following the ebbs and the flows of the rapture-ready index. We do not ready ourselves by having our hopes rise and fall with what's going on in the news and trying to match that up somehow with the Bible. We ready ourselves by carrying out the work he has given us and by doing this through the power of his presence in the Holy Spirit. The task he has given his church is to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when you think about his return, when your life and all the things that are going on in the world move you to especially long for his return, remember that his answer to the uncertainty of when, the answer to the uncertainty of the timing is the certainty of his presence. And his presence in the Holy Spirit empowers us to perform the vocation that he has given us. Would you pray with me?